All right, everybody here, welcome. Gather around, gather around. We're, uh, I'm excited. Uh, it's a new year. We're going to start uh, a new series of messages at the beginning of the year. Um, we're going to look at Second uh, Peter, and we'll be here for the next seven or eight weeks. And we'll return to the minor prophets afterwards, but we wanted to take a little bit of a New Testament break and uh, insert a little New Testament hope into the doom and gloom of the minor prophets. Uh, so Second Peter... Uh, actually has quite a bit of doom and gloom in itself, but uh, it's filled with the hope of the gospel. It's a a punchy little letter that addresses some really very real concerns for the early church, but uh, as we all know, history repeats itself, and these concerns and false teaching that Second Peter addresses are very much alive and active in the church today. and so, essentially, the message of Second Peter comes down to what you believe about the end of time uh, determines how you live your life today. What you believe about the end of time determines how you live your life today. And last words are very important, very profound, and they have an impact uh, that is much more significant than uh, maybe the words that we take for granted on a daily basis. And these are the very last words of the Apostle Peter to the church. It's the very last words that we have uh, recorded of uh, Peter. And this is his final letter. And in this, he knows his death is near. And he uses this last bit of time that he has on earth to impress upon the church the importance, importance of, of godly living in a perishing age. And last words are important. And Peter writes these words, and look what he writes. And this is good for us. Why did he write this letter? He says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that putting off of my body will, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Isn't that wonderful? So that we know what was on Peter's heart, what the Lord had put on Peter's heart, that at any time we can open up scripture and hear a word from the Lord. So this letter is recorded, and by way of God's divine plan, it was put into the New Testament so that we will always be able to remember these things at any time. Isn't that a remarkable and awesome fact? As long as Peter was alive, he wanted to remind his congregation about these things. And he's written them down so that we can always turn to them as a reminder as well. So today, we're going to begin by introducing you to some important aspects of the letter. So my wife tells me that I really need to prep you when we have sermons like this because it is a learning sermon. There are motivational sermons, there are different types of sermons, uh, but today the main thrust is to learn, to really, uh, my, my hope is by the end of this letter, you, by the end of this message, you will really get a feel of Second Peter, um, that you will be able to grasp its main message, 
and that you will really be, have a familiarity with this wonderful little letter. So we're going to look at historical background. We're going to look at the audience. We're going to look at the author, the purpose of the letter, and of course, the main idea that we'll uh, bring home at the end. And these are all essential facts to know if we're going to get the most out of this letter. If we're going to hear a word from the Lord... For those who are new to our church, I know this is a a time of year where we have many visitors. Um, We are a church that takes seriously the word of God. Um, And rather than coming here on Sundays to hear what Karsten, that's me, has to say, we all come with an earnest desire to hear a word from God through his word. And so we have a strong conviction that this happens best through what's called expository preaching, which means a careful presentation of what the passage meant first to its original hearer, and then after that, we apply it, these timeless truths, to our present day. And so when you come here on a Sunday, you should not come here expecting to hear a motivational talk or a social commentary or a TED Talk style life hack. But rather, our prayer is that you would hear a clear exposition of Scripture and God's Word will be laid bare so that the Holy Spirit will be able to apply it to your heart. Now, on occasion, we'll address topics as needed. We have recently covered such topics as AI, uh, abortion, gender roles, but we have done so by drawing on expositional truths from Scripture. So generally, our practice here is to study entire books of the Bible so that we're hearing God's word through the preaching of the whole counsel of Scripture and not just what your pastor uh, would want to preach on a particular Sunday. And this has been a hallmark of preaching here at ICF, and it will continue uh, long after I'm gone, or that's my prayer at least. So as we turn to 2 Peter, we'll spend some time getting to know some basic introductory facts about the letter. We're going to look at the historical context of 2 Peter, the occasion of the letter. It was to address false teaching. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 2, which has a typical opening of a New Testament epistle that has the author, the recipients, and an opening greeting. And in that opening greeting is the message for today. So hold on tight. Let's do this. Okay, we're going to open by reading the first two chapters, and then I'll open in prayer. Uh, First two verses. (laughs) Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we come with an eager expectation that you will speak to us, that those that are in sin would be convicted of their sin, those that are burdened by the guilt of their sin might find the sweetness of the gospel, those that are proud might be brought low, and those that are humbled might be exalted. Lord, you do a magnificent and wonderful work through the preaching of your word, a work that only you can do as you apply your word through your spirit to the hearts of your people. And so, Lord, we trust and rely on you to do that wonderful work this morning. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what you believe about the end profoundly affects the way that you live your life today. For example, my uh, two older sons are taking their driver's education classes at the moment. Now, as we all know, getting a driver's license here in Germany is quite an endeavor. Yeah? Um, there's paperwork to be filled out. There are trips to the Landesamt to be made, papers to get stamped. Uh, permission to drive to be approved. There's driving instruction appointments to be made and kept. Uh, there's information to learn, classes to attend, even first aid tests and eye tests to arrange. And in the last three weeks, I kid you not, I have witnessed a miracle, an unexplainable phenomenon. My two boys have become admin masters. Wow. <laughs> Overnight, it's, it's amazing. They are ticking off the, the boxes at lightning pace. They're studying. They've finished their prerequisites two months early. They aren't missing any of the trains to get anywhere. They aren't remi- they're reminding us to do things that we haven't done. They are on the ball, a true miracle. I haven't seen such bureaucratic dominance in my lifetime. It's truly a thing of beauty to watch. If I didn't see it with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. (laughs) Yes, it's true. The end profoundly affects the way you approach the present. Is it not? Well, and a similar thing is happening within the churches Peter is writing in his letter. A false teaching about what will happen at the end of time has spread among these churches, and this false teaching is having a significant impact on the way believers within these churches are behaving in the present. And we'll take a deep dive into this heresy in point two in a moment. But at its essence, the teaching denied a final judgment. And it denied the second coming of Christ. And in so doing, it promoted a a licentiousness, a, a license to sin, an immoral lifestyle in the present. So essentially, you could have eternal salvation tomorrow, but still live like your pagan neighbors today. A sort of, you can have your cake and eat it too theology. What they believed about the end dramatically impacted their behavior, their goals, their priorities, and their lifestyle today. What do you believe about the end? The letter of 2 Peter was written to address this false teaching. So a few facts before we get into the nitty-gritty of this false teaching. The author was Peter, uh, the the apostle, the rock, right? The first original rock, yeah? Uh, Date 63-64 AD, right? Um, Peter, who is now in Rome and the leader of these churches, probably wrote this letter himself without a scribe because the Greek is just so awful and confusing. So we really can get a flavor of the true Peter here. He wrote this knowing that his end was near. And we know as a historical fact that Paul and Peter both died in the persecutions that Nero instituted around 64 AD. The fact that this letter was most likely written in the midst of persecution also kind of tips our hat at the urgency of Peter wanting to stress orthodoxy and right teaching. Because a lot of heresies arose in this age in order to accommodate 
the, the hard truths of the gospel so that you could say a little incense here to, to, to Caesar and avoid persecution. And so this was a time where the church was rife with false teaching. And Peter wants to bring about the ultimate weight of eternity over against the temporary pleasures of the here and now. And that is the, the weight of the message of 1 Peter. The recipients, as we read, are, are God's elect exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those were the recipients of the first letter that Peter wrote, and he mentions that he has already written one letter, so we assume this is the same audience. The churches all throughout the Roman Empire. It's a really big area. And so this would have been a very widely circ- uh, circumvented circulated letter. Um, So let's talk now a little bit about the false teaching, since we'll be wrestling with these themes over the next seven weeks. So I'd like us to really understand the teaching as best we can today, so that as we walk through the letter of 2 Peter, we'll be able to wrestle and see how Paul is correcting and and, uh, uh, teaching uh, what is counter to this false teaching. So let's see how we can, what we can deduce from Peter's letter, and we'll kind of create a composite sketch or a profile of this false teaching. And chapters two and three is where Peter really hones in his, his argument, and we get a really good description of this false teaching. And the main contention that Peter has with these false teachers is that they taught there was no end-time judgment and no second coming of Christ. So we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, they will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And as we read in Peter's arguments in chapter 2, we can also discern that they denied a final judgment. So in verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything uh, done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You will look forward to its coming. And we'll get into some really good teaching here about what we can expect at the end of time. People don't spend a lot of time to incorporate what Paul, uh, Peter uh, teaches here. And so from this main confusion about the end of time, we see several different ways that impacts the present for those that were led astray by this teaching. That kind of reinforces what you think about the end by necessity affects the way that you live your life in the present. So stemming from this false teaching came a host of other wrong and and dangerous beliefs. So here are some follow-up errors that we read. They were libertarians, which means they assumed the grace given to us in Christ gives them a liberty to do whatever they wanted. 2 Peter 2, verses 13 to 14, we read, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. 
So you see, for those following this teaching, if there's no final judgment, if there's no accountability at the end for what we've done in this life, then it doesn't matter how we behave now. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And in this thinking, Jesus paid our golden ticket, and we can do whatever we want here and now, and we can follow all of our sinful desires, and God will just forgive us. The anti-Christian architect of modern secularism, Voltaire, famously quipped, God will forgive, that's his business. I think I've even heard Christians say that, right? The other problem that arose was an anti-authoritarianism. So they would misuse scripture and justify their behavior against the counsel of their elders and pastors. So we read this in 2 Peter 2.10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. And then we read, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I'm glad I'm not alone here. Uh, Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Interesting that Peter relates uh, Paul's writings to scripture. But you see, they rejected authority They misused and twisted God's word, and we see this is some clear signs of false teaching. Another thing that these false teachers ended up doing is denying the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus has been given all authority on earth and in the spiritual realms. And so here, there are clear hints that although they claimed to be Christians, they taught that Jesus was just a good prophet and a teacher but not God and definitely not sovereign. And so we read in 2 Peter 2.1, they will secretly, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. So here, I hope you get a little flavor of the false teaching. Uh, we get to get a clear composite sketch that they, because they were teaching there's no end times judgment and no second coming, they were libertarians taking God's grace as a license for sin. They were anti-authoritarian, refusing to submit to authority in the local church. And they denied the sovereignty and lordship and divinity of Jesus. So when Peter describes their general attitude, he describes them in this way. He says in 2 Peter 3.3, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So they would be people that would laugh at the, the Orthodox Christians. They would laugh at those that were waiting for the Lord to come. They would mock them and scoff at them. So, It's really not hard to translate some of these false teachings into today's context, is it? If we take as the main premise, the main contention that Peter is correcting is the reigning ideology of our day, is it not? Does 2 Peter 3, 4 not resonate with the main assumption of our contemporary society? Is this not our neighbors, colleagues, coworkers' default mindset? Look at 2 Peter 3, 4 they will say, where's his coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since it's the beginning of creation. 
The world is just gonna go on like it always has. We live, we die, but the world just goes on. This is the default thinking of the day and age that we live in. If we do not think when we die, we will stand before a holy and righteous God to be judged according to our deeds, then yes, this will naturally affect the way that we live our lives today. But if we know that one day we will stand before a holy and righteous God to be judged, and the question will not be, do your good works outweigh your bad works? The question will be, are you perfect like God is perfect? Are you holy like God is holy? Are you good just like God is good? Are you loving as God is loving? Are you perfectly kind like God is perfectly kind? And if your view of the end, then, then you will be desperate at that point for a savior. Because none of us in this room is perfect. None of us is holy. None of us is good. None of us is loving and kind like God is. And if we know that we will stand before a holy God and judge according to his perfect righteousness, then we will be hungry and needy for a savior. And we will live for Jesus today because he died for us. When we hear the good news message that Jesus has taken our sin on his shoulders, given us his perfect holiness, his perfect goodness, his perfect loving kindness, and died our deaths so we could live his life, then we will radic- that will radically affect the way we live our lives today. How we think of the end determines how we will live our lives today. If we're at home in this world, if we love this present world more than the one to come, then this is a clear sign to us that we may have unintentionally adopted our contemporary society's view of the end. As Christians who have put their hope in Christ, we look forward and joyfully anticipate the end as we read in 2 Peter 3, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You want the end to come so that we could see God face to face. So I hope at this point you have a feel for this little punchy letter. Peter's last words to the churches he ministered to for many, many years. And he uses these last days before his own passing to warn and to correct this false teaching. So let's turn now to the opening two verses uh, and see how Peter already in his first words begins to correct and remind the faithful ones about the truth of the gospel. We'll begin by noting the typical Christian epistle opening, the author, the recipients, and a short greeting. So in typical fashion, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's a lot in there. Author, Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Already in this greeting, we see the weight and authority of this letter. 
as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is not speaking on his own authority. He's not speaking on his own words, but rather he is speaking as a slave or a servant and messenger of Jesus Christ. And he has this unique apostolic authority as one sent by Jesus himself. A servant does not speak on his own accord, but rather he speaks what his master has told him. And so the churches reading this letter already know from this introduction that this letter carries weight. And Peter is speaking with the authority of Christ himself. So the recipients, it's interesting to note how Peter addresses the Christians. There are a few interesting features in this greeting. He says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Notice how, how Peter here refers to Jesus, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's clear here that Peter recognizes the divinity of Jesus. Jesus was not just our Savior, but he is also our God. And it is through his righteousness that we have received our salvation. Not our righteousness, but through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here already we see the grace and mercy of the gospel and the way Peter identifies Christians, not through their own righteousness, but through the righteousness of Jesus, we are brought into fellowship with one another and with God. A second interesting feature of how Peter addresses these Christians is that he writes, they have received a faith as precious as ours. Notice here how faith is something we receive. It's not originating within ourselves. We cannot generate our own faith through, through effort and strength and squinting our eyes and trying. But faith is something we supernaturally re receive. And how does faith come to us? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith is this divine gift that comes to us through the proclamation of the gospel. When we hear the gospel message of Jesus' saving love for us on the cross, when we hear about our sin, when we hear and it's impressed upon our hearts about the holiness of God and what Jesus has done for us, faith is, is born within our hearts. Faith is, is supernaturally implanted in our hearts through the, the faithful proclamation of the word of Christ. That beautiful gospel message of God's redeeming love awakens a faith in the hearts of his children. And that's why we place such a big emphasis on regularly preaching the gospel message. For it's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. The gospel is filled with supernatural power to save, to convict, to encourage, and it is the means through which faith comes to the unbeliever. And this faith is a unifying faith. Look what Peter writes. He received a faith as precious as ours, meaning these Gentile believers are on the same ground as the apostles. They're on the same ground as Jewish believers. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Peter is not somehow more faithful just because of his status as an apostle. So there's, there's a lot just in these opening two verses. We meet the author. We learn about his authority. We, we learn about the recipients. And we see that Jesus is both Savior and God. Wow. 
So let's turn to the greeting in in verse two. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Or some translations might say, be multiplied in you. How is grace to be and peace to be ours? Through what? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is found through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If we want to find grace and peace in this life, where do we go? It's found in God alone. As we know God, and how do we know God? Only through Jesus. And as we know him more and more, grace and peace are multiplied in our hearts, in our lives. If your soul is troubled this morning and your heart is restless, go to God through Jesus and you will find peace for your restless soul. That's a promise, that's a guarantee. Peace and grace comes to us through knowing God through Jesus Christ. And Peter here introduces really a main theme of the letter. He, he, this idea of knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. He will use the word knowledge 13 times in this short little letter. He opens his letter with this appeal that we might find grace and peace in the knowledge of God and in Jesus, but look how he closes the letter. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned or you have this knowledge, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter goes on in verses, chapter one, verses three and eight, to speak of knowledge of God through Jesus as the foundation of our faith. And we're gonna look at that next week. And later in chapter two, Peter will say the, the fate of the false teachers will be worse because they knew Christ. They had this knowledge and yet turned away from that knowledge. Look what he writes. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again become entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For if they would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Knowledge of Jesus Christ is foundational for the Christian life. And knowledge in the Bible is not just facts. It is facts, but it's not just facts. Knowledge is also very relational. When the Bible speaks about knowledge, it's in more of a relational way than we make it. When we read that Jesus knew no sin, that means he had no relationship with sin. He was without sin. In the Old Testament, when a husband and wife come together sexually, they, we often read they knew each other. So knowledge in the Bible has quite a different flair than our knowledge. In the Old Te- um, but it's more than just relational. It's also factual. We do need to know who God is and what he has done for us. There are warm and fuzzy feelings in our knowledge of God, but these also need to be tempered by cognitive revealed truth and facts about him and understanding who he is and what he's like, what it means that he's all powerful, all knowing, ever present, creator, redeemer, sovereign. These are truths that we need to know. 
Remember, Peter is writing this letter to warn us about false teaching, about wrong knowledge about God, and to teach us right knowledge about God. So to avoid the errors of these false teachers, Christians don't need only warm and fuzzy feelings about God, but we also need to be armed and equipped with specific facts about what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. I like the way New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it. In our day, and I think he's right here in his analysis, we are rightly warned about the danger of sterile faith, of a head knowledge that never touches the heart. But we need equally to be careful of a heart knowledge that never touches the head. Too often, many Christians know too little about their faith, and we therefore often unprepared to explain how our God differs from the God of other faiths. Again and again, the New Testament explains that our very salvation can depend on confessing truths about God and his revelation in his son. The biblical writers demand a knowledge of God that unites the head and the heart. We must be careful not to sacrifice the head in favor of the heart or the heart in favor of the head, I would add. So this is what is so amazing about Jesus. He, he, not only do we get to know God personally, but we also get to know truths about God that we would never know had Jesus not come and revealed these things to us. Jesus brings the head and the heart together as we grow in our personal relationship with him. So knowledge of God is about knowing God with our minds and with our hearts, and that's only possible through Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us who God is, and, and we read, and he unites us to God through his Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. So grace and peace will only come into our lives when we know God through Jesus. So as we close today, it begs the question for each of us, do you know God through Jesus? Peter says three things about Jesus that Christians believe just in these opening two verses, Jesus is God, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is Lord. Is he your God, your Savior, and your Lord? The good news that Jesus came preaching is that through him, you can have a relationship with God. Not just know facts about God, not just know God at a distance, but you can have a real, living, dynamic relationship with the creator of the universe. Amen. And through knowing Jesus, you can have grace and peace in growing abundance in your life. Know Jesus and you will know peace. So the question you have to answer for, is Jesus God? Is Jesus your savior? And is Jesus your Lord? If you know this Jesus, then you will know peace and grace from God in abundance. And one day, there will be a final judgment. And one day, we will stand before a holy God. And the question will not be, do my good works outweigh my bad works? That's not how God is going to judge us. The question was going to be, are you holy like I am holy? Are you pure like I am pure? Are you loving like I am loving? Not one of us in this room can pass that test. I can't do it. No, none of you can do it. None of us are holy and perfect like God is. But Jesus Christ has come 
to us and says, I paid your debt. I have taken your sin upon my shoulders and I've died so that you might live. If you know Jesus, you will know the grace and peace and eternal life in abundance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, it is uh, unfathomable how deep and rich and living your word is, that it comes alive and, and through your Holy Spirit works deep in our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for, through your Holy Spirit, inspiring Peter to write this. And Lord, we trust that same spirit to be alive and active today in the hearts of your children as we uh, hear your word and hear this good news message proclaimed. I pray that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you personally and, and, and really, that today might be the day they might come to you in faith that they may confess you as their God, as their Lord, and as their Savior. Lord, I pray that you do that great heart work in someone's heart today, and that a person would have courage and boldness to stand up and follow you. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we ask that you uh, do with your word as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.